Hello, I'm Kimberly Dondo, Digital Content Manager, and welcome to In Conversation With, the podcast series that delves into the world of financial services and brings you face-to-face with some of the most notable figures in the industry. Listen as we discuss topics that are currently facing the industry and hear from visionary CEOs to disruptive innovators as we bring you a diverse array of voices and perspectives. We'll explore the challenges they faced, the lessons they've learned, and the insights they have to share about the ever-evolving landscape of financial services. Hi, I'm Lois Valley, Chief Reporter of Money Marketing, and on this episode, I am joined by Alistair Walker, who is a Chartered Financial Planner and Managing Director of planning firm HANW. Hi, Alistair. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, so maybe you could start off just by introducing yourself to our listeners, saying a bit about how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah, thanks. Um so, uh, as I introduced, I'm Alistair, and I've been a financial planner now for just over a decade. Uh, I joined the profession uh, back in 2011 as a trainee in the business that I now run. So, although my only work experience in financial advice and financial planning is the one business, I've done just about every role within it. And uh, I, I joined fresh from a, I'd worked a couple of years at a bank and persuaded them to pay for a couple of exams, uh, moved into the advice sector as a trainee power planner, and then worked my way through to provide advice to people in about 2013. With the benefit of hindsight, I was far too young and naive. Uh, and I would probably look back at the work I did then with a with a slightly uh, raised eyebrow now, um, but I was I was keen and I wanted to get going. And then the real change for the business and the way that I worked was 2016 or thereabouts, when I moved our business from what I'd call a very traditional uh, ongoing advice model to a full needs financial planning model for clients. And so that happened, say, around 2016, 2017. I started running the business in about 2019. Um, and here I am today. Cool. And do you want to say the full name? Because I whipped out. <laughs> Anford Aiken, Head and Walker. We were speaking just before starting recording. I was saying no marketing company would ever tell you to name your company a collection of three names that are both hard to spell and hard to say. Uh, but hey, we didn't ask for marketing advice before we came up with a name. Um, and I noticed you say, um, well, you're, you call yourself planner, you're saying planning firm, you're talking about um, financial planning quite a lot. Um, a while ago, this whole thing came up, advisor versus planner, and different advisors or planners call themselves different things. So what do you think about that? Why do you use planning? That's a great question. And I think it's a, an important one. And it's one that I could literally spend hours on because a lot of the last six or seven years has been about trying to get people to think about planning alongside advising. I think the water's muddied by the fact that the Personal Finance Society uh, award Chartered Financial Planner as a title, which is a fantastic achievement and uh, the result of very often years of hard work, exams and so on. Uh, but what it doesn't do is require you to do financial planning. And so there's a bit of a disconnect between people who, who take the title and, and quite rightly use the title because they've earned it 
and the process of doing financial planning. So in contrast, I'm also a certified financial planner uh, with Chartered Institute of Securities and Investments. And in order to uh, hold the CFP title, you have to evidence the fact that you are doing financial planning in your day-to-day job. So you can't have the title without showing that you're doing the work. Um, It's further complicated by the fact that financial planning isn't a clearly defined term. People use Mm. it to mean different things. Financial advisor is the one term in the sort of massive word cloud that people use to describe what they do that's actually protected by regulation. So you can't set yourself up as a TikTok expert who's going to tell everybody to rent property out to people that they're renting from other people. They can't call themselves a financial advisor. So we have mm. that protected word. You have to be regulated as an individual. Um, you, you, Interestingly, you don't have to be to call yourself a financial planner. So they could just call themselves financial planners. They could because there is no protection. So, um, so there's there's that aspect of it too. Further complicates things. But what I try to focus on when I'm talking to people about this, and as I say, it's it's been going on for six or seven years. I chaired the financial planning panel at the Personal Finance Society for two years uh, until uh, early this year, and. That was the result of sort of five years of working on that panel as a volunteer to try and uh, increase the proportion of of PFS members who were doing financial planning versus advice. That was kind of our remit. So I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about this. The focus of financial planning is on the person and their outcomes and their what I would describe as human objectives as opposed to financial objectives, first and foremost. So mm-hmm. that's the best test that I can see for financial planning. You know, are you looking at the at the person sat in front of you and saying, okay, yes, there's this money, there's there's products, there's things you want to do. Very often you'll come to me with a question that is very product focused. Oh, what should I do with my pension? Or, you know, or oh, I need to invest some some money I've inherited or whatever it is. Um but but you to say We'll park that question and we will answer it, but we'll answer it as part of a full needs and outcomes analysis of you going forwards and your wants, needs, aspirations, objectives. And that will help to answer that question, but we can't answer that question without doing this bit. Hmm. So that's financial planning to me. Interesting. Sounds like it sort of ties in quite nicely to the whole financial well-being conversation. Sounds a bit like what Chris Budd says about, you know, deciding what you want to do and then from that deciding how much money that you'll need to do that yeah absolutely and it's no coincidence that chris was one of the early proponents of this sort of human outcomes focused financial planning Mm, definitely um so what would you say are some of the biggest challenges for financial planners today the the obvious one is the is the economic situation that we've spent the past two years facing, mm-hmm. um, and the feeling of I may be speaking personally here, but the feeling of general malaise about the UK, about our place in the world, about what that means for what I'd say are traditional active management style approaches um, to investing. Uh, we have 
had a whole body of work with consumer duty, which has been, I hope, largely very positive, but comes or brings with it challenges that I think, first of all, have widened the advice gap, mm-hmm. uh, have made the job of running a financial planning business more expensive. And therefore, inevitably, that expense finds its way to client fees mm-hmm. because that's our only revenue source. Um, and so so you've got this kind of regulatory movement. You've got the economic situation and the general sense of complete political apathy. Uh, the, the current government are so busy fighting between themselves that they seem to have forgotten that there's a the rest of the world to worry about. Um, and then the wider sort of global situation it's not a great you you, i don't find myself sitting sitting down looking around and going yeah things feel really good at the moment but of course that can change because i was literally having a conversation with a client this week about this they're feeling very bad about similar things i'm saying just imagine us sitting here three years ago we weren't thinking oh in three years time we're going to be having seen the other end of a pandemic, a European war, a war in the Middle East, uh, you know, that was by definition completely unpredictable. We have no idea how we're going to feel in three years' time again. So there's always space for optimism, but uh, maybe maybe it's the turn of the seasons, but I'm not feeling it at the moment. <laughs> oh dear. Well, hopefully there is something to look forward to. Um, on So you mentioned the advice gap there. Um, what, what are the sort of things that you think that financial planners can do to help try and close that well first of all i assume you do agree it exists because i know some financial planners or advisors probably don't this is a case of of defining your terms again isn't it because i don't see how anybody can see the number of people who need advice versus the number of people who get advice and not see a gap there so Mm. i think if you don't think there is one you must have a different definition of what a gap is um and i think that there the best thing I think we can do as a sector is stop trying to be generalists. And it's slightly counterintuitive to say that because by defining and narrowing the work that we do and, and our target audiences, and again, sort of consumer duty, asked advisors to focus on that as well as product providers. Mm. Um, by narrowing and defining what we do, we can start to serve a section of our sort of potential wide-ranging client, um, sort of ideal client, we can narrow that down and we can say, these are who we, these people are people we serve really well and we're going to focus on that. And what that does is that opens up business models that can serve clients at different parts of the wealth spectrum or different stages in their life or or whatever else. But, But I think as we all try to be generalists, and not everybody does, you know, a good number of firms are now developing a niche and, and working towards that. But for as long as we try to be generalists, what we do is we we inevitably cross-subsidize from one area of work to another. It's very hard to be able to profitably serve, you know, your kind of mass affluent and your high net worth and your maybe mass market as well. Because you can't build a model that that satisfies the needs of all three within the cost constraints of running a business. So, so if I say, well, okay, actually, what we're really great at doing is serving people who are five to ten years away from retirement, who have 
half a million to a million pounds of accrued assets and just need to work out the best way forward with what they've got then i can narrow that market and i can say that's great that works that works for us that's what our business is really good at serving at serving i can make it efficient i can make it cost effective and i can work well there that allows another firm to say actually what we're really great at is dealing with people who have entered retirement with less than £100,000 in a pension, but who still want the flexibility and options and uh, and uh, ability to leave it to the next generation. And we can build a model that just serves those people. Suddenly, I'm not a competitor of that company and they're not a competitor of me. Suddenly, mm-hmm. we have people who can say, actually, I'm not going to work very well for you, but I know somebody who can. And that way, I think collaboratively, we can resolve the advice gap, but only if we narrow our offerings and we're prepared to say, we can't do everything, but here's someone who suits you. Mm, definitely. No, that sounds like it really makes sense. Um, also, sort of, I did want to talk a bit about how tech might be able to help. I know, so we had our um, Money Marketing Interactive Conference back in October, um, and a lot of the talk was about artificial intelligence and how that might be able to, because I knew the conversations, like, more globally, I don't know if you've been watching the coverage of this artificial intelligence conference that's been going on that Elon Musk has been talking at. Um, and Elon Musk has basically been saying that AI probably is going to take everyone's job in the future, which I don't know if that's true. I mean, he's pretty eccentric. But um, also, more, it seems like right now, more of the conversation is about how AI can help us rather than how it's going to take all our jobs. Um, And one of the conversations that we had at our conference was about how it can help financial planners by taking some of the, you know, administrative, I don't know why I even tried to say that word, um, tasks out of the financial planning process and allow them to focus more on the human being, which I think is what you were saying about earlier. Um, So I just, yeah, I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Have you seen any examples of AI being used in financial planning process? Do you think it's a positive thing? What are your sort of thoughts on it? Yeah, it's absolutely high on the list of things I get hundreds of emails about every week, Uh, mostly from people trying to sell an AI-based course for something or how to use it or whatever else. Um, So I think this is a polarizing topic and at each end of the spectrum of people's views, it stems from a misunderstanding of the technology. I'm a massive geek. Uh, anybody who knows me will attest to that. And one of the areas I'm geeky about is technology and and its use and its adoption. Um, and before having any view on something, it's a really good idea to, to dig into it at some length. The Economist has done some really good deep dives into, into AI. Um, big fan of their work on that. And uh, I... I I, in the sort of peak of the chat GPT release and sort of people saying this is going to be absolutely the best thing or the worst thing or, or whatever for the world, uh, I tried to I tried to analogize what chat GPT was actually doing. And the analogy I came up with uh, was one of those sort of fairground games where you put a disc in the top of a pegboard and the disc bounces around between all the different mm. pegs and it lands. And if it lands in one of them, you might win a prize. If it lands in another, you won't. And, and, and underpinning the current generation of large language models is effectively a sophisticated version of that. 
It is a what is the most appropriate next word, given what I know about all the previous words that have been written for this sentence. That mm. is a large language model's um, uh, programming. That's what it does. And the better the model, the more sensible sounding the outcome. And so when you know that's what's happening uh, sort of behind the curtain, you can start to deploy it in a way that's useful because what it won't do is come up with novel ideas, for example, because novelty isn't a feature of having a load of inputs and guessing based on those inputs what the most sensible thing to say is. Uh, so you can't you can't get novel ideas from it. What you can get is very good error checking, for example. Uh, so it makes a good first round editor uh for documents um it makes a good summarizer of documents someone i know who's in the in the sort of financial services tech space uses it to summarize all their documents and it's great serves that purpose really well where i think people run into problems is where they expect everything it's the the current models say to be accurate because emphatically they're not because uh, there's this concept of hallucinations whereby they uh, they just imagine things that sound convincing um, and they're not imagining it because there isn't something thinking. It is just most likely word to follow the last one that people will like. So so with that in mind, with its limitations in mind, yes, I think it can be really helpful. I have seen some interesting implementations of it so far. So as I say, the, um, the, the sort of summarization, um, I use it for Excel functions because it's much more... Uh, efficient than spending 20 minutes trying to work out the right Google search for an Excel mm -hmm. function. But even then, it sometimes makes them up. So you have to be careful to, to make sure they actually work. Um, I have seen a firm that is trying to solve the advice gap problem called hundreds and thousands, uh, actually deliver suitability reporting via an AI, I guess you'd call it a deep fake, sort of uh, created person who speaks the suitability report in video form mm. and that's both fascinating really impressive and slightly creepy yeah i can imagine i did a um i volunteered to do a five minute presentation to our company that owns money marketing on how i'm using ai in my day-to-day -day job which isn't I'm, I'm not really using it that much but occasionally chat gpt um, and it's mostly just sort of for sort of initial research. But like you say, you have to very much check that it, what's, what it's saying is correct. Because at our conference, it was, um, you know, Bella from Funscape and Compare, Compare the Platform. She was saying she asked ChatGPT to write a, and Bard, I think, to write um, like a, a few paragraphs about her and her background. And it got half of it right and half of it wrong. And it was a bit scary, like how it tied it all together and made it all sound very convincing. Um, so yeah, definitely something to look out for. But the reason I said that about the five minute presentation thing that I did for the company is because we had a guy as well doing one first who gave us a demonstration of that AI created person saying some stuff. And it is creepy. Like it's just not quite like a real person, but close enough to be quite disconcerting, I think. And I think I've used this analogy before, but it's the, the rate at which tech develops is quite impressive. So like if I look back at my first iPhone, for example, it couldn't do most of what my iPhone now can do. But that's only in the past, I don't know, 16 years or something. So not that long. So, yeah, it's I think it's definitely something to watch.
I always think back to uh, my maths teacher at GCSE, and I'd say, why why do we have to do the non-calculator papers? And and he'd say, because you don't have a calculator in your pocket at all times. Well, who's laughing now? Mm, do actually. <laughs> but it could break, and then you might need to use maths for in your head for really important calculations. You never know. That's Maybe he'll have the last laugh. <laughs> when the iPhones try and take over the world, and then we might need maths in our head. And and that's a that's a good point in terms of the AI. Uh, is it is it a good point? Because that, that sounded like a stupid point to me. Well, no. You see, the the the, the current generation of AI is is a massive leap from the previous. And and the point mm -hmm. that the sort of techno fatalists make is that this is a train that we're on now. And so, yes, the current version of ChatGPT isn't going to take that many people's jobs, although probably it already has taken a few. Um, there are certain listicle creating uh, media organisations that I understand fired half their journalism staff once they got a subscription to GPT-4, for example. Um, but the next generation or five generations time, you know, who knows? All bets are off. But that point you made about the, the sort of video person being quite, quite, the, the, I think the term, my my favourite term, this is the uncanny valley. You know, they're in this space that isn't quite human. For jobs that involve human interaction, uh, you know, financial planning is all about our relationship with the client. I think that gives us a reasonable chance of not being completely replaced by AI in the near future. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, if they get if AI gets so clever that it can replace human to human interaction, I think we've got more to worry about maybe than it taking a job. Absolutely. Cool. Um, no, that's already. I'm, I'm doing this thing where I'm trying to say interesting. So that's all really enthralling, Alistair. Thank you. Um, I did. I, I also. I mean, this is completely sort of jumping around a bit, but um, I wanted to talk a bit about consolidation in the advice space, which is obviously. Well, um, I've been at money marketing now for a two and a bit years, and it's just something that's always going on. It's always topical. I always do these um, articles like summing up what's happened over the year, and usually it's consolidation. Um, and I wondered if you could give us some thoughts on consolidation and where you think it's going in the advice space or planning space. Yeah, it's absolutely a big topic. Uh, we We have a profession that's built from a large number of small, you know, you might call it cottage industry, you know, there are lots of small firms and a small number of large firms. And I think really the last five years has demonstrated that the last generation of small firm owners didn't plan their succession very well. And mm -hmm. I think that speaks to part of the consolidation story is that if you get to your mid fifties, and you've got no obvious plan to uh, to continue the business that you've created as is, then you're really left with pretty few options in terms of your retirement. So I think there's a there's a story there, but more recently, what I'm seeing is there are, there are sort of a couple of conflicting issues. One is it's just got much more expensive to borrow in the past year, and that's affecting what the sort of big hungry consolidator type businesses are interested in the sorts of multiples they're offering the amount of work that they're requiring to 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 
to go into a buyout uh, from people I know who've been through it recently, that's changed a lot. Uh, so I think there's a there's a slowing down, but I think there's also a changing of the model where firms. That, so I, I saw in the the press this week, for example, that uh, Chamberlain's um, have been acquired by Cooper Perry Wealth. Probably not this week when this podcast comes out. Ah, this week when we're <laughs> recording, as of recording, um, and and that's really interesting because Chamberlain's were on their own acquisition trail and themselves, and so you've had this sort of acquisition of an acquirer, and I suspect mm. we're going to see more of that because the funding model is going to really matter, and it, and if you've got funding at a, a you know at a certain rate you might be looking at what you've acquired over the past two years and going, oh gosh, this doesn't quite stack up in the way that I thought it would when money was basically free to borrow. Mm. So I think there's going to be quite a lot of people in a lot of boardrooms at the moment sitting down and going, gosh, is this model going to work? And what do we do if it doesn't? Yeah. But I think on the other side, we've got a regulatory picture that doesn't want or appreciate small businesses and i think that's a big challenge particularly for directly authorized small firms of let's say less than five uh, advisors so that's us we're one of those yeah. um we've we've three financial planners in the business and 10 employees in total and it's very evident to me that the regulator isn't particularly interested in firms like ours and by not interested i mean they're making it quite hard to get authorized so i know mm -hmm. a number of people uh, friends who've been through direct authorization in the last uh, couple of years, where it's taken a year for the process to go through. And this is people's livelihoods, this is people's businesses. And whilst there's no official regulatory direction on this, it feels very much like there's a, are you really sure you want to do this? Wouldn't you rather work in a bigger business? You know, and, and the focus is all on risk controls, on senior management functions. And and from a regulator's perspective, I absolutely get it because if you've got, if you want to affect uh, an impact a thousand advisors and you have to talk to five compliance directors or a thousand managing directors of small businesses of of, of one person bands, then obviously talking to five is easier in order to make that regulatory impact. But I just wish we had some more upfront. Uh, information from the regulator about that being a direction because it certainly feels like it to me yeah. if we if we knew that that was a regulatory focus and regulatory direction we'd be able to better understand how we can work within that so i have this um uh this idea i i uh, bumped into amir Shalima actually uh, recently uh it's funny because we had a half hour conversation about this and we were both really surprised the other one had exactly the same view. So mm -hmm. it's clearly not just me thinking about this. Uh, I think there's going to be a need for some m sort of model where like-minded smaller firms get together uh, as a sort of meeting of minds so that we can present something that looks more considered and bigger to the regulator. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a that's not a consolidation, not a network, but some model that meets the needs and, and lessens the concerns of the regulation, helps to improve client outcomes for the small businesses. I think that's a really exciting potential development over the next five years. Yeah, definitely. Um, Amir just recently launched his own firm, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because I've spoken to, I've um, 
spoken to quite a few people who've launched their own small advice firms recently or are sort of in the process of trying to. And I'm definitely hearing the same thing, like it's really hard to get direct authorization. Sometimes it's even quite difficult to get like to become an appointed representative as well, not necessarily just DA. So yeah, I think much as maybe the regulator wouldn't admit it that it is again or doesn't really favour small firms, I think that is definitely the case. Great. Um, we are probably approaching time, but I did just want to ask you um, one last thing before we um, end the podcast. And that is what one piece of advice would you give to someone starting out on a career in financial planning? That is a good question and one that I have given quite a lot of thought to. I do a bit of mentoring and get asked questions by people, particularly through next gen planning, who are trying to join the profession and the answer is always the same and that is basically talk to as many people as you can and if that's not within your or you don't feel that's within your skill set or within your comfort zone which when I started my career I absolutely didn't um I was I was the person that sort of sat in the back of the the room at a conference glued to my phone and refused to make eye contact with anybody that was me 12 years ago and through forcing myself to get out of my comfort zone to get used to speaking to people to asking people for their time and to actually ask for it in that way it's amazing how willing people are to give you their time their expertise and their wisdom if you just ask for it and i wouldn't have achieved nearly as much as I have in the time that I've been doing this without the free time given freely and without any sort of expectation of return. But of course, you do then try to pay it forward of people, you know, far cleverer, far more accomplished than I am. And it's only with that that then we grow ourselves. Perfect. I know I said that was the last thing I was going to ask you, but just when you mentioned mentors there, um, we were having a bit of a conversation that, um, in the money marketing team the other day about mentors. And um, so my colleague, um, Amanda, our features writer, she wrote a feature recently about um, whether mentors should be telling people what to do. You know, how how in depth should they go? How much guidance should they give? How much should they allow mentees to make their own mistakes? So how do you find that as a mentor yourself and as someone who's been mentored what's the sort of what do you find is the best balance there so i subscribe to the sort of european mentoring and coaching associations model of coaching versus mentoring so to to sum it up in a coaching scenario the solution comes from the person being coached and the coach's job is to facilitate a better quality of thinking so that the coachee can come up with a solution the solution's in there all along with mentoring the solution is between the mentee and the mentor's experience uh, expertise knowledge wisdom and so the model of mentoring is to be able to exchange that or, or to give away some of that experience expertise wisdom or knowledge to enable the mentee I think that's the right term to yeah, so. uh, to come up with their own improve the quality of their own thinking so there is definitely more of a directional sort of uh, but rather than a you should do this it typically looks more like when i've experienced something similar this was the approach that i took 
and this is why, and this was the outcome. So it's kind of learning from other people's mistakes very often rather than learning from your own. I see. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Alistair. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. It's been very beguiling. Is that a word that means interesting? Very interesting. We'll need need a thesaurus next time. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to In Conversation With. We do hope that you enjoyed it. Please do keep up to date with all our new releases via Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts from. You can also keep up to date with all our new content published on the Money Marketing website, as well as our print edition, Money Marketing Magazine. So make sure to subscribe. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. See you next time.